Hello, and I hope everybody's having a good Wednesday. I imagine there's some of you out there who like the fact that it does not feel like December outside. Now, you know me, I like it cold, I like winter, but um, but you guys won out today. Looks like it feels nice outside. I even have to admit it. We're going to take a look today again at the book of Acts for our midweek perspectives. Last week we took a look at Acts chapter 3, and I hope you've had an opportunity to read through Acts chapter 4 a little bit these past few days. Um, if you have not, or even if you have, maybe it'd be a good idea to take a look at it again. Um, it's got a little bit of length to it, but um, some good stuff in this chapter. And it follows up what took place in chapter 3 quite well. So before we really get started on that, I'm just going to pause just for a second. And to give you an opportunity, push pause on your player um, to, to read Acts chapter 4. If, if you haven't done that yet today or haven't done that at all, um, to get, get, you, get us on the same page here as we begin our, um, our discussion. So let's give you a second to do that. Okay, hopefully you're back. And um, again, we're going to take a look at Acts chapter 4. Remember the end of Acts chapter 3. What we have taken place there is um, uh, an incredible miracle takes place at the hands of Peter and John. Obviously, it's the Holy Spirit working through them. But the result of that miracle, as we jump into chapter 4, is we see that Peter has the opportunity to preach another sermon. And people um, are convicted. By the Spirit, and they yield themselves to the Lord. And as you see at the beginning of, of chapter 4, some, some really, really good things happening there. And the church is still exploding. The number is coming up to um, around 5,000 people. And the church is still really, really new. It's a baby church at this point, but it is growing. And obviously, um, these events catch the attention of uh, the the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and they take Peter and John and they bring them into the, the Sanhedrin to question them. And what we see take place is here is, is they come right to them and they say, obviously they cannot deny that a miracle has taken place. So they just cannot do it. Um, you do not have a frame of reference of weeks since the miracle took place, or months, or years, or even centuries or millenniums to be able to say, oh, well, that's just a, that just didn't really take place. This had just happened, and they could not deny it. So they ask Peter, and they ask John, they say, how did you do this? What power was used? How, how did you accomplish this incredible, um, this incredible non-natural event. It's, it's a miracle. That's what it is. I'll tell you what, Peter begins this conversation, and it's really an interrogation is what it is. And, and, and Peter, man, he begins with a haymaker here. He, he pretty much tells them, okay, you have seen the miracle. You know the miracle has taken place. And now you need to know that that miracle took place by and through the power of of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on from there to say, this Christ, this cornerstone that you rejected has become the stone upon which God is going to build his kingdom. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing this a little bit. You can see it as you look down through verses 11 and 12. And he just, I mean, he just tells them very boldly uh, exactly what they do not want to hear. That this Jesus whom they rejected, whom they killed, now they did it indirectly, but they were still, had the blood on their hands. 
And, and Peter said, this is the chosen stone of God upon which he will build his kingdom, the son of God. So um, this, is, this is kind of an interesting thing. Remember, remember what Jesus, Jesus gave Peter uh, the title stone himself. And upon this stone, I will build my church. People never, ever want to misunderstand that Peter did not exactly know who the church really was built upon. Now, now Peter is also somebody in his letters in First Peter, you will read that he says that followers of Jesus Christ are living stones that are laid upon the foundations placed. And that foundation placed by the apostles originally was the foundation of Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. So it's interesting to me that, that Peter is, 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 in this time frame, months later, but later on, years later, he's still using that language that Jesus used in reference to him. So Peter doesn't hold punches. He says, the guy who you killed he raised, God raised him from the dead. He is alive, and through his name, this man has been healed. And through his name, and his name alone, are people saved, and saved from their sins. So, now, the, the, the Sanhedrin, they, they are just, they're in awe here in some ways. Not in a good awe, but they are just like, they cannot believe that, that the confidence that Peter and John have. Um, these men, they, they knew that they weren't educated in, in the Sanhedrin schools or anything like that, but still the confidence they had, and it, it caught their attention. And then they began to recognize, it, it says in verse 13, that, oh, wait a minute, we've seen these guys before. These are the guys who were with Jesus. So from that point on, you see this interrogation take place. They they listen for a while and then they pretty much just threaten Peter and John and tell them, you can no longer speak in this name of Jesus Christ. Peter's response was this, all right, guys, you decide for yourselves. You're followers of God. At least you say you are. You decide for yourselves. Who are we? Who should we obey? You or God himself? So I have a feeling they threatened them further and released them, but I, they have to understand that their threats are going to fall upon deaf ears. Uh, now, not necessarily deaf ears, as we will see, but their threats will have no power over Peter and John, as well as the rest of the apostles. So what we see play, take place next is Peter and John go, they report to everyone what has taken place. They report to them the arrest, the threats, and then what do they do? They pray. They don't sit there and discuss it. They pray about it. And if you look into verse 29, you will see they're praying to the Lord and they say this, Lord, take note of their threats. Now, what we might expect is something along these lines. God, take note of their threats and please eliminate those threats for us. Clear the road so that we can present this message without opposition. I mean, isn't, isn't that what would be the, the logical thing you think that you would pray? That is not at all what is prayed by Peter and John and the rest of the followers of Jesus. They go on and say, Lord, extend your hand 
and continue to do your works, your wonders, and your signs through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And right there, just on a little side note, in that statement right there, we find the ultimate purpose of miracles. You know, we sometimes get a a, a clouded vision of what miracles are really about, thinking that it's just God relieving the suffering of his people or God stepping into a situation, being asked by his people to act. And God does that at times. But the primary purpose of a miracle is not just for the end of suffering or that a a what seems like the only conclusion to a medical problem or disease whatever you want to call it is for God to step in and bring an end and change the outcome by his power and to do it because he loves his people now do not misunderstand me God does love his people but the primary purpose of miracles is testimony for the message of the gospel. That is the primary purpose from the very get-go at the beginning here of the church. That's the primary purpose for miracles. So in other words, if, if you have experienced a miracle in your life, if you have seen a miracle experienced, God expects us to testify of that and more specifically testify of the power of his son to save. Not just save lives physically, but to save spiritual lives, to save someone from their sins, because that's what matters most. So the primary purpose of miracles, we see that as a side note in this. So not only do they pray for God to continue to act, they do not pray that the, that the persecution would end. What they pray for, if you continue to see this, verse 29, take note of their threats, grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence, with boldness. Now, it looks like to me that Peter and John are already pretty bold, but they're praying for more boldness because I think they know that this persecution, this opposition... Jesus was a prophet after all, and Jesus told them that there would be opposition to his kingdom in this world. They understood that, and they wanted boldness when it came to continuing to present the message with power and with conviction so that people would repent and turn their lives around and turn them over to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what they wanted more than anything. And um, there's a powerful lesson in that for us yet today, I truly believe. So, um, and that will conclude our our discussion of Acts chapter 4. Next week, we'll take a look at Acts chapter 5. We're going to get a little bit of a look of what's going on inside the church. We've seen the persecution from the outside. And in chapter 5, we're going to get a chance to see some of the details of what's going on inside the church. And there's pretty shocking, (laughs) something pretty shocking coming in chapter 5. So I hope you'll take the time to read that um, one or two, maybe three or four times um, before we get back together next Wednesday. Thank you so much for taking the time um, to be with us today. Have a good week.